Welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today we explore another aspect of the financial crisis, the impact on higher education, both for students and the schools they attend. As the daily headlines attest, students and colleges alike are getting a new crash course in economics and crisis financial management. Higher education is slated to receive some $54 billion in the just-approved stimulus package, but most believe this is just a temporary fix at best. The effect of the recession, skyrocketing student debt, and growing demands for accountability in higher education spending are all hot-button issues facing America's education leaders. One of the leaders who has a unique and deep understanding of these issues joins us today. She is Dr. Karen Gross, president of Southern Vermont College, located in Bennington. Prior to becoming a college president, she spent more than two decades as a bankruptcy law professor at New York Law School, while also serving as president and CEO of an educational nonprofit that designs, implements, and studies programs to improve the financial literacy skills of consumers. A scholar, teacher, empiricist, and advocate with a national reputation, her writings have appeared in dozens of the leading academic journals. Her prize-winning and highly readable book, Failure and Forgiveness, was published by Yale University Press. She served on numerous boards and commissions, including two terms as a member of the ABI Board of Directors. Welcome back to ABI Podcast, Karen. Thank you, Sam. It's nice to be with you and nice to be talking to your audience. Let's um, let's get started with um, uh, uh, a, a discussion of where we are uh, in terms of the uh, how the current economy is affecting higher education. As a former bankruptcy law professor, now turned college president, share with us how you view the impact of the economic crisis on higher education. Well, as you noted in your introduction, colleges and universities have not been immune from what's happening in the larger economic uh, crisis. So let me share with you some of the top areas where colleges and universities are experiencing this impact. Let's start with endowments. Um, As is very clear, endowments are shrinking in value along with everyone else's retirement funds and stock portfolios. Right. And there's some relevance to this in terms of how colleges and universities operate because many colleges and universities, not mine, but many use revenue from the endowment, generated by the endowment, to help fund operations. And so their operating budget is hurt by a loss in the endowment. And this is what has caused, on many university campuses, freezes, uh, stoppage of building projects, concerns about hiring, concerns about how they're going to meet the cash flow needs of their institution on a go-forward basis. 
The second thing that's been happening on campuses, not surprisingly, is that there have been delayed receivables. As colleges need the money that they are owed from others, the people who are paying them money are delaying in the payment of those receivables, which is also having an impact then on an institution's cash flow. The third thing that's happening is that students themselves and their families are having a hard time closing the gap between the monies that that student can borrow or get through grants and the amount that's needed to pay for tuition, room, and board. Mm -hmm. And at least at our institution, even though the sum that the student actually owes after they've gotten their financial aid package is not enormous, there's an increasing difficulty that many students and their families are experiencing in terms of closing that gap to afford education. And this is a really critical issue for me as I think about running a college because if you have students who have debt but no diploma, that's the worst of all worlds. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for educational institutions to find a way to ensure that their current students and prospective students who enter the institution in the fall of 2009 are able to successfully complete their undergraduate education. I might add this is also an issue in graduate education. But for our purposes here, it's really important that if you can't afford to pay for your education and you only get partly through, you end up with really the worst of all worlds. Mm -hmm. You end up with debt and you end up with no diploma. But those aren't the only issues that are coming down the pike here in higher education in light of what's happening in the economy. Another thing that's happening at many institutions is that donations are slowing. At many institutions, donors gave appreciated stock. Right. But in this economy, there is <laughs> no <that>? appreciated <laughs> stock. There's depreciated stock. Um, and the other thing that's happening is that foundations are increasingly cutting back or curbing the amount that they can give in the form of grants to educational institutions. So the capacity of colleges and universities to fund themselves, which comes not only from the revenue in many institutions from the endowment, but also from donations and foundations, is a problematic issue currently. And then, as if all that weren't enough, there are two other actually three other significant issues. One is there's decreased access to capital, which makes it very hard for institutions, particularly smaller institutions, but actually all institutions, to build new projects because the access to capital is so diminished. And the need for letters of credit and other fiscal security measures that heretofore didn't exist is making it very hard for colleges to enter into the capital markets. The next thing that's happening along the list here of uh, the parade of horribles, I guess we might call mm -hmm. it, um, is that there's clearly enrollment uncertainty. As, as many families reflect on education, unfortunately, the media has been um, portraying stories of if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. um, Education is expensive, families aren't going to be able to afford it, and that fear factor 
is something that we should be worried about because if there is one investment that's holding its value in this economy, it's education. If you look at the top jobs that are out there, they need a minimum of a bachelor's degree for most of those top jobs. Indeed, in Vermont, nine of the ten top jobs require a minimum of a bachelor's degree. So, unfortunately, there shouldn't be enrollment uncertainty, but there is because the cost of education is being used to scare some families off. And that's terribly bothersome as we think about educating the next generation. And lastly, I think one final issue that's impacting colleges and universities is that there is a concern about jobs at the end of the college experience. And one of the issues is that increasingly employers aren't able to do the kind of recruiting that they used to do to the extent that they're even hiring. But to the extent they're hiring, they can't travel to recruit. And so that's hurting access to the job market for prospective college graduates. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty long list of things that are happening in higher education as a result of the global economic crisis. And I was struck by how many of them sound very similar to the kinds of issues that are faced by businesses and other commercial enterprises today. Everything from delayed receivables to uh, this idea of, uh, you know, you've got to finish the job, you've got to finish the project uh, in order to sell it, um, for, you know, like a housing project or a, a condominium uh, project or a shopping mall. Access to capital uh, being diminished, uh, enrollment, um, in your case, sort of customers, if you will, uh, being down because of fear. And there's you know, consumer confidence in a, an economy that's two-thirds run by consumer spending. So you really are just a mirror of the, uh, you know, the, the commercial uh, economy. I think that's true. And interestingly, education and running educational institutions is clearly a business. We have a wonderful product, though, an amazing product, and a product that's truly needed in this economy and needed globally. So in that sense, we can feel really good about what we produce. But it's really important in that context um, that we find a way to be able to do it effectively in this economy. And let me just go back to one of the issues that I raised that you picked up on, which is enrollment. One of the very fortunate things that institutions like Southern Vermont College can talk about is that the education they provide is career launching. And that's become a very important issue in higher education, that one can get both a liberal arts education, but also access to career opportunity. In other words, it's no longer an either-or proposition that students either go to a technical college or a school that does professional training, or they go to a liberal arts college. You can now find liberal arts colleges that are truly dedicated to being career launching, mm -hmm. which is a way of helping ensure for students and their families that whatever debt they incur, they'll be able to repay because they'll be entering into a world in which the skills that they have will make them employable. Is there uh, a difference, do you think, in the impact uh, between a state-supported institution 
and a private school? I mean, are these problems uh, uniquely or acutely problems uh, for private schools? I think there are some, actually many shared problems between the public institutions and the private institutions, but there are some key differences. Um, public institutions now are really struggling in terms of the size of their budgets because the state funding is at risk in many of the uh, large state universities and even some of the smaller ones, actually. And so they, the state colleges and the state land-grant universities, rely on a large amount of support from their state. And if that doesn't come through, mm -hmm. they have very large budget issues. And the interesting thing that's been happening is that some of them have been forced to raise their tuition. And so the gap between public institutions, whether for in-state or out-of-state tuition, mm -hmm. is in many instances not radically different from the amount families would pay in private liberal arts education, particularly for vulnerable students and for families that are not as well off financially. So that there was historically a huge divide between the cost of public education and the cost of private education. And I think it's important to realize that in many instances, the private institution is almost price competitive with the public institution. That happens to be true at Southern Vermont College. We truly offer affordable excellence that's competitive with state college tuition room and board. Mm -hmm. And in some cases for in-state tuition, and in some cases clearly for out-of-state tuition. The other major distinction between the public institutions and the private institutions um, that makes this a, a sort of interesting conversation is that private institutions have always relied very, very heavily on their endowments mm -hmm. and have always been very dependent on donations and the like. And public institutions, historically, because of their reliance on state funding, have had less robust endowments and less robust giving, at least as compared to the major private institutions. That doesn't mean they don't fundraise, by the way. Right. But they it has not been as central to what they do until very recently as compared to um, their private collegiate neighbors. Right. As a, uh, as a parent of uh, one college-age uh, student and one uh, about to be, uh, I'm becoming acutely aware of the state-public uh, uh, distinction and how that gap that you talked about is beginning to narrow a little bit, and as, and as one's uh, 529 plans become 229 plans or 129 plans, um, that becomes an issue uh, in, in terms of affordability, and I say that, you know, not, not you, know, either, you know, sort of across the board, that even families that spent a lot of time, you know, preparing for this uh, really weren't prepared for this, uh, which is to say a total meltdown that we've seen precisely at the time when families need the resources to, you know, to put their child in a situation where they can even, you know, forget attending the school of their dreams, but, you know, going anywhere, candidly. It's really a, it's really an issue for families, which I know you are dealing with on a daily basis. 
What, what about um, in terms of uh, uh, speaking of this uh, issue, in terms of access, uh, a family's access to the student loan market? Are, are students finding loans and, and will they find them um, uh, for the coming uh, academic uh, year or two that, that we're immediately facing? This is one of those good news, bad news mm -hmm. answers. Um, I think that, well, let me divide the student loan market into the government, federal government student loan program, then I want to talk about state loans, and then I want to talk about private loans, um, and then we should probably add institutional aid provided by a particular college or university. So let's talk first about federal loans. This is a good news answer. There's every reason to believe that there will be access to federal student loan money in the form of both Stafford subsidized and Stafford unsubsidized loans, as well as parent plus loans. And there's every reason to believe that there will be increased funding based on the stimulus package for Pell loans. There's also every indicator that work-study money, SEOG, SMART grants, and ACG grants will be available to students. At the end of the day, what that means is that for the most vulnerable students, and even some students from families who previously would not have been able to access all the federal money that's there who now will be able to do so, there will be those kinds of grants and loans available. That's really important. And one of the things that's been very clear recently is that that piece of the student loan market seems like it will not only remain stable, but will increase. That's good news, particularly for institutions who have a large number of fiscally vulnerable students. As to state money, Many states provide grants and or loans to students. Some states do it only for their residents who stay and go to college in-state. About eight states allow the state money to be exported outside their state to other locations. That money is, I think, in many states quite vulnerable at present because that's money that comes from state budgets. Mm -hmm. That's money in an era of declining state budgets that will be very difficult to access. And some of those state organizations have already either had declining or diminished payments for the second half of the current academic year, which happened here in Vermont, as well as in other states. But there's an indicator that the amounts available going into next year may be problematic in terms of state awards. Mm -hmm. That's not good news. In terms of the private lending market, um, which had increasingly been used by families when there wasn't enough federal money and there still wasn't enough state money or institutional money, they went out into the private loan market, and, and this is the market that, by the way, raised a number of the issues um, that became the subject of investigations, including by Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. That market is troubled right now. 
And while there still are private student lenders out there, the amount of money that will be available, the number of lenders, and the credit criteria for accessing the credit will be changing and making it harder for some families to get private student loans. Now, some people are not very distressed about this because they always thought these were very high-priced right. loans for education. Right. There are others of us who thought that if you negotiated with the right lender, if you were careful about the parties with whom you transacted your loan business, these were ways to help some students and their families close the educational divide. Mm -hmm. Now, there was another form of this private student loan lending other than truly educational loans, which was families who borrowed off of their home equity loans, mm -hmm. lines, excuse me, their home equity lines in order to help finance a college education. And there are others who borrowed off of other kinds of accounts that they had created um, to help pay for their students' education. And not surprisingly, the economy has hit both of those, that the amount of home equity available to help finance the college education of one's children is now significantly diminished in many regions. And also these accounts, whether brokerage or otherwise, to help pay for an education have gone down in value. So the amount of money that you can borrow or get um, in the private loan sector is, a, is an issue. Which lastly gets us to what institutions themselves do. And many colleges and universities, my own here included, discount tuition for a number of their students. And among college presidents, we've been talking about the need to increase the discount rate, the amount that we as an institution provide to support the aid of our to support our students and their families is likely to increase. So that creates an additional financial burden on many institutions. Now, as you likely know, the most elite institutions were what I call free-riding students. In other words, paying their whole tuition, sometimes room and board too, um, through the revenues out of the endowment. And that meant that the most vulnerable students, indeed at some schools, even families where the combined income was $180,000 or less, were getting a fair amount of the tuition and in some cases room and board paid for. Other institutions discount tuition. And it's pretty clear to me that colleges are going to have to look really carefully at how much they can discount in order to ensure that their students can navigate their way through higher education. But still, you can't discount so much that you can't operate your own institution. So that's what the landscape looks like in terms of, of families financing their students' education. I, I cannot think, by the way, of a moment in time where it's more important to have a quality financial aid office on campus mm -hmm. and to help students and their families think about and put together a quality financial aid program. The form itself that families have to fill out is complicated and difficult. The FAFSA form right. is, for many families, even a hurdle to entry. Right. And so one of the things we've done as an institution is that our financial aid officer has actually gone out into the community to a variety of schools 
in an effort to help families, whether their students are coming to Southern Vermont College or going elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But to be able to get ready early to plan for access into college in the fall of 2009. I find that form impenetrable. <laughs> well, there's been a movement to um, help families by simplifying the form. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see that happening in the near, near term. Yeah. You know, I think colleges also need to be really sensitive to the economic strains on students and their families. I mean, this is a really hard time, and we're not used to speaking money's language, and we're not used to being bombarded with the sort of regularized conversation about money. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do on our own campus is increase for both faculty, staff, students, and parents the level of financial literacy programming that we're doing, access to information, assistance, formal programs, informal opportunities to talk about, think about, and reflect on what's happening. So I can't stress enough how truly important it is at this moment in time to have one's campus be ready to help kids and their families. Well, the, the need for the education is even um, perhaps even more acute, one level below. You talked about that you have a very progressive you know, aid office that has been very proactive in reaching out to schools and families and prospective students. But you think about you know, the sort of the high school guidance counselors, the college counselors, even at, the, you know, at, at, at private schools, um, they need to also, you know, adjust the weapons, you know, in their toolkit to, um, you know, demystify and reassure, uh, if that's the right word, uh, families that, you know, there are these options and that, you know, yes, what they perhaps thought they had saved uh, for this purpose, uh, even in its diminished uh, level, you know, can still work, uh, but the, the, uh, the picking of the right school, the right fit, becomes all the more important. So those, at that level, uh, the, the counselors really need to be equipped with, um, you know, a, a, a more refined um, education about what's available and, uh, and what's out there to benefit students and their families, it would seem. I agree with you. And one of the risks of what's happening in the media is that there's been a homogenization of colleges and universities, both public and private. And so when the media portrays what's happening Mm -hmm. and launches into things like families can't afford education and everyone's losing their jobs and there's not going to be money, that's that's actually not true. Mm. There are colleges that truly, including private, small colleges, that are truly affordable and that if you work with the financial aid office, you can put together a remarkable package mm-hmm. and find a way to help one's kids enter college and then graduate from it. And I think it's really important to do exactly what you said. One has to really investigate the alternatives that are out there 
and not say all private colleges, for example, are expensive and or all state colleges right. are not. Right, right. And, and so, but I also think, by the way, that it's really important not to sacrifice education in this environment. The jobs that are out there now for the kids who graduate from high school are not the kind of jobs that will help them grow and progress for their lifetime. And in truth, an investment in an education doesn't lose value. All the literature is really clear on this, that if you invest in education, it really does pay off. It may be the one investment you can put your money into now that actually has a hugely positive return in terms of prospective income, in terms of employability, in terms of happiness, in terms of civic participation. I mean, all the indicators are right that education is something you could could and should partake in, even in a troubled economy, at least in undergraduate education. We've spent uh, a lot of time talking about uh, institutions, um, and, and you know, rightly so, since they're the providers. Um, but let's talk at least a little bit um, before we uh, wrap up here about the students. Uh, you have uh, written extensively, and I know you're uh, you've been uh, had a lifetime of being terribly concerned about debt burdens on individuals and the need for education, and, and particularly with respect to uh, to young people. And so, the issue is, especially in this environment, uh, do you expect to see a a further elevation in students uh, needing to seek bankruptcy protection? And if so. Is the law's current treatment of student loans and student debt in bankruptcy um, uh, effective to meet uh, the current scenario, or, or or should it be adjusted to? Again, you know, we're breaking all the rules here in Washington these days. So should you know should the government forgive student loans in the way that you know we're forgiving uh, many other uh, obligations? Let me start with the good news part before I get to the bankruptcy and insolvency and legislative change part. Um, if there is a silver lining here for colleges and students and their families, it's that campuses can really pay attention to how to help provide opportunity and talk differently and thoughtfully about money and finance in ways we haven't done before. Historically, we've done financial literacy programs at the start during orientation, which makes no sense to me, by the way. Students are trying to figure out who their roommate is and their way to the bathroom. They're not going to focus on financial literacy education. And we do it when you get a student loan and we do it when you leave a college and graduate and they tell you about repaying that loan. But those are the moments that the ticket to enter and the ticket to exit, those aren't good times either. Mm-hmm. So we have an opportunity now to do a better job of helping students navigate through college in a fiscally thoughtful way. But one of the things that's happening is that increasingly employability is hinging on one's credit score. And so if students aren't wise when they're in college, mm-hmm. they'll not only end up in debt, which gets to the issue which we want to talk about in a second, which is bankruptcy, but it also means they're impairing their capacity to both get insurance and to be employable. That's a pretty big risk. Mm-hmm. And so colleges should really care about their students' financial well-being, not just because they want them to eventually give back to the institution, 
but they should care if they want them to be employable and they want them to be able to get insurance, that they've got to pay attention and help students navigate while they're within the collegiate environment. Now, it's also very clear to me that there will be a level of debt where if jobs continue to decline, students will leave college with a sufficient amount of debt that they either can't find a job or the jobs they find won't be able to service the debt. And that's not a risk, frankly, for many of the students at Southern Vermont College, I'm pleased to say, because the jobs that they enter are ones where there's real need and those jobs will be there, which is in healthcare and in criminal justice and in social service agencies and in entrepreneurship, but there are lots of other students who emerge from college where they won't be able to get the kind of employment that will enable them to service their debt. And when that happens, if those students access the bankruptcy law as presently constructed, they cannot use bankruptcy to discharge that debt. And as you know, when the law was changed, it makes non-dischargeable both student loans made with respect to nonprofit educational right. institutions, but also for-profit educational mm -hmm. institutions. So what you're doing is you're truly handicapping the future of many individuals, and you're doing it in a way where they can't possibly pay their way out of the debt that they've incurred. Now, if you look at the current standards for discharging debt in bankruptcy, which you can't do other than for an undue hardship, the standard for an undue hardship, at least Pretty historically, tough. has been extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I used to say to students years ago that you basically had to be living in a cold water flat, you know, suffering from cancer with a spouse who left you and a child who was dying. I mean, short of that, you weren't going to get a discharge of your student loan. Now, I think what is possible is that what constitutes an undue hardship could loosen up. There is the possibility that even without changing the bankruptcy law to make more student loans dischargeable, you could loosen the standard of what constitutes undue hardship, which would enable some students who are truly incapable of repaying that loan in the foreseeable future um, to be able to find a discharge of that debt. But clearly this is an issue that's going to impact the lives of our students going forward, the amount of debt they have. And the other thing that, that I think we have to pay attention to is that for some students, their families may have to seek relief under the bankruptcy laws. And so those students will be, quote, independent in ways they weren't before but they also will then be dealing with the stresses and the strains of family failure. And that impacts on students' capacity to concentrate on their right. collegiate studies. It, it disables them from feeling comfortable engaging in a collegiate community. Understandably, they're worried about what's happening at home. Mm -hmm. and that's so all of people. these issues for me suggest that one way that I've always looked at bankruptcy is as a social safety net. And in many ways, it still, even with all the changes to it, can still provide a meaningful social safety net. And perhaps there would be ways of thinking about using the bankruptcy law to help students and their families purchase what's really an invaluable gift, which is their future. Agreed. We, uh, 
we're about out of time, but it it uh, struck me um, that uh, you mentioned that your school is probably a very fortunate indeed to have a leader whose background is in uh, in these times in, in corporate finance, bankruptcy, and understanding about issues of debt rather than uh, French uh, being a French literature scholar. Not to disparage French literature scholars who are presidents of small colleges, but uh, you're you're in a good uh, spot to help your school weather uh, this particular uh, storm. Uh, and so we uh, thank uh, our special guest, Karen Gross, for, for joining us today. Well, it's been my pleasure to be with you. These are challenging times, but they're ones which create other opportunities for us to think thoughtfully about helping the next generation. So I hope that's what I'm doing, and I hope the college that I lead is able to do that for many, many students. Well, best wishes uh, for you and and for Southern Vermont College uh, in the future. Uh, We also thank our audience uh, for joining us. You can listen to or download more than 60 podcasts from our homepage at abiworld.org. And until next time, then, this is EBI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.